We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. I ask you to turn to uh, Ezra, Esther, excuse me, used to Ezra, we were just there this morning, Esther chapter 9 this morning and 10, 10 is only a few verses long, so I don't think it's too much effort to make it through the end of Esther this morning, Esther chapter 9, we'll begin there. Beginning in verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, that is, the month of Adair, on the thirteenth day, the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. On the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred, in that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. The Jews gathered together in their cities throughout all of the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could withstand them, because fear of them fell upon all people. And all the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and all those doing the king's work helped the Jews, because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. For Mordecai was great in the king's palace, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For this man Mordecai became increasingly prominent. Thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, with slaughter and destruction, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. And in Shushan the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. Also Parshandatha, Dolphin, Aspatha, Poratha, Adelai, Eridatha, Parshatha, Aristai, Eridai, and Vesetha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, they killed but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. On that day, the number of those who were killed in Shushan the citadel were brought to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men in Shushan the citadel and the ten sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It shall be granted to you. Or what is your further request? It shall be done. Then Esther said, If it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who are in Shushan to do again tomorrow according to to today's decree. And let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. The decree was issued in Shushan, and they hanged Haman's ten sons. And the Jews who were in Shushan gathered together again on the fourteenth day of the month of Adair and killed three hundred men at Shushan. But they did not lay a hand on the plunder. The remainder of the Jews in the king's provinces gathered together and protected their lives, had wrested from their enemies, and killed 75,000 of their enemies. But they did not lay a hand on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adair. And on the 14th of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. 
But the Jews who were at Shushan assembled it together at the thirteenth day, on the thirteenth day, as well as on the fourteenth day. And on the fifteenth of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the, the Jews of the villages who dwelt in the unwalled towns celebrated the fourteenth day of the month of Adair with gladness and feasting as a holiday and for sending presents to one another. And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews near and far who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to establish them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adair as the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies, as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them and from mourning to a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and joy, of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted the custom which they had begun as Mordecai had written to them, because Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them and had cast pur, that is the lot, to consume them and destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letter that this wicked plot which Haman had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. So they called these days Purim, after the name Pur. Therefore, they all, therefore, because of all the words of this letter, what they had seen concerning this matter, and what had happened to them, the Jews established and imposed it upon themselves and their descendants and all who would join them, that without fail they should celebrate these two days every year according to the written instructions and according to the prescribed time, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city, that these days of Purim should not fall, fail to be observed among the Jews, and that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihel, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter about Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus with the words of peace and truth to confirm these days of Purim at their appointed time as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had prescribed for them. And as they had decreed for themselves and their descendants concerning matters of their feast, fasting and lamenting, so the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim, and it was written in the book. And King Ahasuerus imposed tribute on the land and on the islands of the sea. Now all the acts of his power and might, and the account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second to King Ahasuerus, and was great among the Jews, and well received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his people, and speaking peace to all his countrymen. We're in chapter 6 of Luke's Gospel. If you would turn there, we're in verses 27 through 38, or we'll see how far we get, in other words, this morning. We're going to be looking at the title of our message, The Ethics of Christ's Followers, The Ethics of Christ's Followers. And um, there's a way in which I hesitate to, uh, not hesitate really is not the right word, in which I kind of come with a little trepidation to a message like this because there is a all too common approach to using the New Testament to teach moralism. 
If you're just a good person, then that's really all that matters. And you just need to be nice to your neighbor and do the golden rule and you know, all that sort of stuff. And that is not really the point of the gospel. The point of the gospel is you cannot live the way that God wants you to live, the way that Jesus teaches you to live, unless you have been regenerated from the inside. And so some of this, if you're coming at it from a perspective of um, just a religious person or uh, just a a nice person or an upright kind of person, but not a saved Christian person, you might say, well, some of this is nice and other of it seems unrealistic and I really can't do that. Uh, I can't have that kind of attitude that the Lord enjoins upon me towards other people that are mean to me or whatever. Well, that's because you haven't experienced the saving grace of Christ to transform your heart to become more and more like his is. So we're not talking here about uh, just being nice and being moral or neither are we talking about if you just do these things, then you'll be a Christian and you'll be right before God and God will accept you into his, his heaven and all of that. No, you need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. These things grow out or are fruit out of that kind of life in which one is a believer in Christ. Now, in my Bible, just to shift to directly to looking at the text in uh, the one scripture, copy of scripture that I had, it titled this section in verse 27, Rules of Kingdom Life. And I think the translation has done a poor, or I should say this, the translators have done a poor job of putting headings on the text in a way that biases the conversation uh, immediately at the outset. So, you know, you look at that and you say, well, that's just what Jesus was talking about, rules of kingdom life. But he didn't say these are rules for kingdom life. He never used those words. Um, The heading is a bit premature because although Luke has mentioned the gospel, of the kingdom and the kingdom of God in several places in chapters 1, 4, and 6. Jesus does not say the kingdom is present or that we are in the kingdom now. He, he does explain it. He offers it and tells about the conduct of its citizens, but he does not say that it is inaugurated, neither at that time in which he spoke nor even afterward. Over the course of the remainder of the gospel, Jesus and our narrator Luke speak of the kingdom very often. In fact, about 44 times altogether they mentioned the word or the phrase. Uh, Because the king himself was present, the kingdom was very close to them. The Lord would say that the kingdom is drawn near or the kingdom is in your midst because the king is standing right there in front of them. But in fact... He clarifies later on that the kingdom of God would not appear immediately. That's the whole point of Luke 19, 11 to 27, that whole parable. The kingdom is not going to appear immediately. His followers were to pray for the kingdom to come. Remember that? Thy kingdom come. His followers were to seek the kingdom of God. Seek ye first the, and all these things will be added to you. His followers are to know that it would draw near once again in the future. It's it's so interesting that the Bible is very clear about this, yet today most Christians are totally unclear about this. And I'm saying all this for a reason I'll come to in a moment. It says that uh, the kingdom will draw near again in the future. In fact, it says when you see these things happening, 
This is in the Olivet Discourse. Know that the kingdom is near. Well, if it was already here, that wouldn't be an issue. His followers also are taught in Luke's gospel to look forward to the Lord again, eating and drinking with them in the kingdom. Remember that around the Lord's table we'll see tonight. I won't eat and drink of this this bread or this cup until I do so again in the kingdom of God. Now Luke continues to speak about the kingdom in his second book, Acts, but the number of mentions of the kingdom are much fewer there, only about eight or so compared to the gospels, nearly four dozen. But Luke does there record the teaching of the Lord on the kingdom for an extended period of time after the resurrection. Remember, it says for 40 days he spoke to them of the things concerning the kingdom of God. We read of the apostles' question, you know, will you at this time restore the kingdom? And basically his answer is no, I'm not, but that's not even your issue. Your issue is the Spirit of God is going to come upon you and you're going to go out and make disciples of all the nations, just like Matthew chapter 28 says. And uh, you're going to do so in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. That's your job. Don't worry about the kingdom and its timing and all of that sort of stuff. But Jesus, at the same time, does not dismiss their notion about the kingdom coming at some point. In fact, later in in Acts, Philip and Paul themselves both preach the kingdom in, in their proclamations in a way which I think is very much like what Jesus did. Remember, Jesus said, for this reason I came forth, I've got to go to all the other villages and preach to them the kingdom of God as well. Why? To tell them to repent and believe the gospel, otherwise they won't be able to see that coming kingdom, was his teaching. So what I'm saying here is that we're not in a spiritual or symbolic kingdom of Jesus or some kind of, uh, you know, under-the-table kingdom. We're in the church. Let's be clear about that, okay? We are in the church, not the kingdom. We are in the church age or the church dispensation, as we call it, carrying out the Great Commission. We plant new churches. We don't start new branches or departments of government. We don't start new states in the worldwide hegemony of King Jesus. The influence of the church, to be sure, is present, but it's not worldwide or dominant like it will be when the kingdom comes in the future. I hope you can clearly see that. The church is a remnant. The church is not in the majority today. We don't run the kingdoms of this world. But though we are not in the kingdom presently, every Christian has by second birth become a citizen of that kingdom that will appear in the future. And because of that, We have a certain ethic, a certain morality, a certain code of conduct that we are to follow. Jesus commands us a certain kind of thinking and attitude. Paul says it this way in Romans 14, our focus should not be on eating and drinking, but on righteousness, faith, and peace, joy in the Holy Spirit. Our service then to Christ will be acceptable Romans 14 tells us, and we will not bring a stain upon the reputation of the coming kingdom. We could say it like this. You know, today, you know, you might say it in two different ways. They basically mean the same thing, but somebody could look at your life and say, I don't want to be, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I don't want anything to do with it. Okay? You know, if that's what it means to be a church member, count me out. 
Somebody else could say it in a different way, but they say, look, if that is what their kingdom is like, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, right? Somebody could look at your life and say, well, if that's what a citizen of that kingdom looks like now, I don't need to have any involvement with that future kingdom when it comes. I don't need all that rot and all that nasty stuff and all that division and all that. I can live my life peaceably and not have to deal with all that. See, if we don't adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, people look at it and they blaspheme the name of Christ, as Peter says, because we don't live right. Our homes aren't in order. They're not peaceful. You know, Our churches are dividing and that sort of thing. Why? We can't get along. So who needs that? Who needs that drama in their life? They would say, we've got to do better, folks. We, we as a church, broadly speaking, I speak to us, us as Fellowship Bible, but also all churches uh, that are listening and would be interested to listen to this. So all of this explains now how it is we can read the Sermon on the Mount and the other ethical teachings of Jesus without becoming all confused as to whether those things apply to us or they're only for those in the kingdom or there's some mixture or something like that. Here's what happens. Some people have looked at things like this in the Sermon on the Mount and say, totally, uh, Christians I'm talking about, totally unrealistic. It's for the future time in the kingdom. It doesn't apply directly to the church. And other people say, no, we're in the kingdom and uh, we're, we're expanding the kingdom and, and uh you know, we've got to live just exactly like this because we're in that kingdom. Both are incorrect. They're, they're not quite, they don't quite have it, okay? We are citizens presently of a kingdom that will come in the future, and because of that citizenship, we ought to conduct ourselves like we should as citizens of King Jesus. Now, you have to read this carefully so as not to apply the text in an overly broad fashion. Uh, If someone strikes you on the one cheek, turn to them the other also. Does that apply to police officers? Obviously not, okay? If you get, see, I've already got you confused, like, what, what's he doing? No, it doesn't apply to police officers. If you slap a police officer, he will probably slap you back and you will go to jail, okay? Because he is a keeper of the law, should be, and he does not bear the sword in vain or whatever the modern version of the sword is, as you understand. So we can't apply these in an overly broad way, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that as we come to it. If, If police officers had to turn the other cheek, we would have anarchy, Come to think of it. But anyway, instead of focusing on kingdom ethics, as some have suggested, let's just call this message more generally the ethics of Christ's followers. Christ's followers. Uh, his kingdom will come and his followers will merge into that kingdom. He first tells us in verses 27 to 31 about our disposition toward our enemies. The kind of person that he's talking to is from back in uh, verses 20 to 23 where he says, Blessed are you poor, those who hunger, those who, when men hate you, when you weep. That kind of person, the person who's poor in spirit, who hungers for righteousness, who weeps over the condition of the world and is persecuted, is the kind of person that wants to be like Christ. So Jesus teaches us what we should look like if we're to be like him. 
verse 27. But I say to you who hear, you who have ears to hear, let ye hear. I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. Section one here of our notes. The principles we learn here are binding on all people. Now, the Lord says, I say to you who hear, and he's addressing a group of his disciples. Remember, we, lay, we kind of set the foundation last time. We said there is immediate 12, and then disciples kind of on the next circle, concentric circle outward, if you will, and then just people who are coming to listen to him outward from that in this sermon on the plateau or on the level place. And uh, so there's a big crowd there. But he's speaking to his disciples particularly. Those of you that will hear, I want you to hear. But when the Lord speaks like this, we have to understand that he's not just saying, look, this, this only applies to people who believe in me and everybody else is exempt. No, in fact, if you are on the outside looking in, not a follower yet of God, and if you disobey these kinds of instructions, then you're guilty before God. It's just like the Ten Commandments. God gave them to the nation of Israel, but you know, thou shalt not murder applies just as well to a Gentile as it does to a, a Jewish person at that time and carries on you know, right down through today. So these laws, if you will, or principles are binding on all people. If you're not a Christian, though, you may bristle at that thought and say, you know, why do I have to obey that? Why do I have to be that way? Well, it's because your nature has not been transformed and your thinking is not in line with God. If you're not a Christian, you have the same nature now that you came into the world with when you started out. And your mind, your, your desires lean decidedly against God's ways, okay? Your mind needs to be retooled to understand that these are the best ways to live. When you, when you take everything into account, and I mean everything, okay? I'm not just talking about how good you feel today or tomorrow or the next day or your plans for the next five years. I'm talking about when you take everyone into account on the horizontal plane in the whole world and, your, and God above and your future judgment when you, stand, you take all of that into account, this is the right way to live. This is the only way to live. This is the only sensible way to live. That's why your mind needs to be retooled if you haven't thought about it that way. If you're taking into account you know, this little tiny context, this little dot on the page, which is your life in the time span of human history, the vapor that appears for a little while and then goes away. If you're just looking at that little dot and not thinking about how that dot exists into the future or how it affects everyone around you, then you're not going to understand what we're talking about here. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you will naturally gravitate toward this teaching 
You will want to do it even if you find it difficult. And I suspect you'll find some of this difficult if you're a Christian here today. In other words, as a believer, Jesus said, my sheep do what? They hear my voice. And so when he speaks, we grasp that that's that's for us. But how to implement it, how to put it to practice, how to be, you know, we have to remind ourselves of this. Now, in the series then of quick five quick statements, the Lord Jesus teaches us, love your enemies, number one. You have to ask yourself, what is, what is love? You know, how do you do that? Uh, loving your neighbor, that's good. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with all your heart, that's fine. But loving your neighbor... If you define neighbor kind of narrowly, is not enough. Because in Leviticus 19.34, God said, Remember the stranger and love him. Why? Because you were a stranger before, remember, in the land of Egypt. And so very, very interesting that God tells his people to love those who are strangers. Now, in this, and this kind of connects back, gentlemen, to a conversation we had yesterday morning at men's prayer. This does not mean that we close our eyes to the evil of someone or we pretend they're fine or we be a weakling or we give up our morals or we excuse their behavior. You see this with Jesus in John chapter 18, verse 23. He's before the Sanhedrin and one of the, one of the guys there gives him a whack. And he says, if I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. Don't just start whacking <laughs> is the idea. So he confronted wrongdoing. And oh, that man that struck him. I wonder if he ever became a believer in Christ. How he would live for the rest of his life knowing that I struck the Son of Man, the Son of God. Now, if he didn't become a believer, guess what he's going to have to live with for all eternity? I struck the Son of God. But Jesus confronted him. Yes, you can tell a wicked person they're acting wickedly. That is love. But the the best way to help that person is not to harm them. The best way to love someone is not to hate them. Okay, That's what the Lord is saying. Love your enemies. Look, if you love those who, I'm sorry, if you hate those who hate you, You are just like they are, aren't you? Yeah, I'm better than them. (laughs) Oh, really? The disposition in your heart toward them about matches the disposition of their heart toward you. You're better? I think not. Then the Lord says, do good to those who hate you, not evil. 1 Peter chapter 3 is a great biblical illustration of this. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, it says this. Finally, be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. Knowing that you are called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days... Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. 
For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter would have us to inherit a blessing, wouldn't he? Not a curse. If you behave like evil people, though, returning bad for bad, then again, you're no better than they are. Instead, Paul tells us in Romans 12, 21, uh, overcome evil with what? Good, you know. Give to your, your enemy. Bless those who curse you. That's what Jesus says next in verse number 28. Say something nice. Do something helpful. Do not return fire for fire, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, brand for brand, nail for nail, stripe for stripe. You're supposed to be a follower of Christ, not a jerk. Jesus says, number four, pray for those who spitefully use you. They need your prayers for God to intervene in their life more than you need to be unused. Does that make sense? Yeah, you're, you're just a servant of God. If, if you're being used by that person could be used by God to convict them of sin and bring them to saving faith, then so much the better for your being used by them. You, you serve somebody, serve somebody maybe for years, and they turn away or reject you or whatever. Um, pray for them. Don't just... Hate them. Don't hate them at all. Uh, next, number five, it says, To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. I put these together under one heading. Humbly submit when you're wronged. Humbly submit when you're wronged. You, you could be wronged by someone hitting you or taking something from you, but your dignity and private property is not worth sacrificing love and testimony and the dignity of Christ. Your property belongs to him, that is the Lord, and if you're persecuted for his sake, it's not really your honor that's being impugned. It's his honor that's being impugned. So be more concerned about his honor, his property, than yourself. Now these instructions, this is where we are going to not read them overly broadly like I warned us earlier on. These instructions are for individuals in individual settings of personal rights, not for nations with criminals or states, we could say, with criminals or municipalities with criminals, nor for nations with other nations in military conflict. Okay? It doesn't mean that if your enemy drops one nuclear bomb on you, let him drop a second one. Okay? It's not what it's saying. Nor do these verses prohibit self-defense in criminal situations where the likely outcome is beyond a slap in the face or an insult. If there's at risk great bodily harm or death and self-defense is permissible, according to Scripture, and I would say required to prevent the outcome that is displeasing to God. That may be a... Some of you may say, what do you mean required? <laughs> well, I mean, there's a choice of saving your family's life or... Um, putting a little hurt on a criminal, I think it's more better to put a little hurt on the criminal than it is to let your family be killed. Okay? That's an objective measure. By, by objective measures, it seems to me that way. Now, others will, will take a totally pacifist position, but uh, God has put...
people here, and corporately so, in order to restrain evil, hasn't he? So there's some role that people have with that. But in any case, so we're talking about individual personal situations, somebody insults you or whatever, humbly submit. Now we go on. It says in verse 30, Give to everyone who asks of you, and from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. Now, we naturally want to put some kind of fences around this because, you know, we don't want to give all of our money away if somebody comes and says, hey, you know, hey, 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 you know, can I have any? have none left? It's sensible to put fences around this, say if the limitation has to do with someone who asks reasonably. Of course, you have responsibilities too. You have a responsibility to care for your family and care for yourself, and you can't just give away everything so that you can't feed your children, okay? But somebody who asks reasonably, that's the kind of context we're talking about. Somebody who asks something outlandish or does not have a legitimate need is not to be catered to, okay? Jesus is talking about someone who has a real need and who asks for assistance. Now, I'm assuming, and I think we can assume, that the needy person is as self-sufficient as possible under the circumstances that they have. That is, they, 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 uh, they, they're diligent, they do what they can. They are doing what they can. And, and I would assume, too, that we're talking about a person who has enough quote-unquote pride that he would not ask for a handout. You know what I'm talking about, people who would hesitate to ask for help? That's the kind of person who would be the most likely candidate for help because they're doing what they can to try to supply for themselves. But if they're just a lazy bum, they're not doing what they can do, then they need to be told, you need to get with it, man. You need to work. You know, you can't be lazy. Just ask for for handouts if you're not being diligent. However, all that said, we cannot put so much of a fence around this Uh, instruction, give to everyone who asks you. We can't put a fence around it so tight that we don't obey it at all. And you say, I'm just not going to do that because it's fraught with problems. If you do put that tight fence around there where you never help other people, guess what? You're just like the Pharisees and the scribes who nullified the word of God with their clever traditions. You know, mom and dad... I can't help you because all of my stuff's been given korban, it's called. It's designated as a gift to the temple. So I designate my money. I put this, you know, this, this ghostly designation on it so that it can't go to being obedient to God. It has to go to this other thing that I prefer. That's what they were doing. Funny accounting is what they were doing to try to get out of being obedient to the Lord. So... We can't do that. So we're called here to deny ourselves, to help the sinner to get to know God. The goal is not to vindicate yourself. God will take care of that. But we spend, I think, some of us especially, I think, spend a lot of time trying to vindicate ourselves. I'm right, you're wrong. It's my way, not your way. I don't like what you're doing. Get out of my way. The goal here is not to feel powerful or great or morally superior or smug. The goal is to win people to the Lord and honor God along the way. It's to 
humble yourself. It's to care for others. It's not to be so consumed with self. Uh, Go down to verse 31. It says, just as you want men to do to you, do also to them likewise. You get the golden rule from this. And uh, some have formulated it the other way, uh, in the negative way. If you don't want something to do, if you don't want someone to do something to you, then don't do it to them either. And that's good as far as it goes, I suppose you could say. It would tend to reduce a lot of injurious behavior, but it would not produce as much positive good as this teaching does. Jesus made that kind of human teaching more by stating it positively. Just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. So positive instruction here. Again, this doesn't save a soul to do this. This is what Christian people do out of their nature because they want to be obedient to the Lord. The golden rule, as we call it. Now, we move on then to part two. And I've titled this, Being Like God Has Great Reward or Offers Great Reward. Chapter 6, 32 But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. So it's really three statements of the same principle. Okay, If you're just acting like unbelievers, don't expect any special credit for that. Okay, so he's dealing here with a widespread problem, the Lord is. The widespread problem is a truncation of his teaching to, oh, I'll do good to people I like. I'll be helpful to people that are nice to me. You know, I can do that. The Lord is attacking that truncation of his teaching, that shortening of it. It does not only apply to those who are nice to us. Now, human nature is programmed to, you know, scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. You know, you do good for me, I'll do good for you. If you're a halfway decent human being, that's what you would do. But the Lord is asking us to display our best character when the conditions are worst. The Lord reiterates we're supposed to love our enemies, we're supposed to do good, we're supposed to lend, hoping for nothing in return. These are ways to express our faith in God and to receive a great reward in heaven. The Lord also tells us if you do this, then you will be sons of the Most High. Let me carry on and read verses 34 and following. And if you, uh, sorry, we'd read 34 already, 35, but love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Just think about yourself for a moment. When you, before you met God, how good were you? How worthy were you of his care and attention? Uh, Were you unthankful at all in your past life? Were you evil at all before you became a Christian? God was good to the unthankful and to the evil, including you all and me all. 
That's how God is. If God only did good to those who did good to him, then it would be good angels, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. They'd be all in a nice club, and nobody else would ever be able to join. But God was good to us who were sinners. And so he wants us to share that kind of character. God is kind and merciful to every person, even those who are ungrateful and evil. And this is a common grace doctrine that we hold. It's amazing. It challenges us to conduct ourselves likewise. When you think about it, God sends his sunshine and rain on the ungodly and the evil as well as on the godly and the good. But we're all too likely to hate those who are evil and have no place of compassion in our hearts for them. You know, sins which we look at and say, man, that's egregious, or that's so stupid what they're doing, makes it difficult for us to overcome our internal pre-programming, so to speak, so that we can show true compassion to them. It should be helpful to remember that all of our sins are egregious to God as well. Yet he had mercy upon us. He did not only give life and health and food and air to his friends, he loved us when we were his enemies, right? So you have an enemy in this life? This teaching applies. If you live by faith like that, God will reward you. Now, the timing of that reward is not guaranteed. It may only come in the next life, but that's all right. It will come. The last two verses of our section now. Evil judgment is forbidden. It says in verse 37, Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together. Speaking of this reward, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. That's an interesting little picture. It's, uh, if, you, if you were wearing a long um, coat or a tunic, what you would do is you would, if you wanted to receive a bunch of grain or something, you'd hold it up like this and get that little pouch filled up with it. You would have it filled up so that it was falling, you know, falling over the edges of your cloak or over the edges of the garment. Judge not, condemn not, forgive and give, he says. Four more quick statements. If you do these things, you will experience a merciful judgment instead of condemnation and... Uh, you'll receive forgiveness and reward. If you have lack of compassion towards evil people, what does that indicate about you? It indicates an evil judgmental attitude. Now, we've said this many times before. I'll just say it quickly again. This verse does not condemn all judgment. It condemns evil judgment, malicious judgment, censorious judgment, hypercritical, hypocritical judgment. But it doesn't stop us from making judgments, discernments, decisions about what is right and wrong. Even in this context, we're told about things that are wrong and things that we shouldn't do and things that we should do. With that as the background, we discern the Lord is saying to us, we are not to judge others outside of these boundaries. What he means here is not a harsh kind of evil judgment, lest we ourselves be judged with that similar kind of judgment. Where do I get that from? Well, um, Matthew 18 is one example where you had the guy who was forgiven a whole bunch and then he went out and he collared his 
collared his uh, other servant, trying to choke him, say, hey, pay up, you know, his little pitiful amount. Well, the master got word of that and then turned the tables upside down on the guy. Or in, in, in uh, you know, James, judgment without mercy will be shown to you if you show no mercy. Okay? To him who has no mercy, judgment will be as uh, if no mercy. It's, it's like um, the parable in Matthew 25 on stewardship. You know, I knew this is the evil servant. I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you, you know, do not sow and all of that. And the, the master says, okay, that's what you think. I'll judge you according to your words. And he found out what kind of judgment he got. Now, when the Lord says, judge not, lest you be judged here, judge not uh, from Matthew chapter 7, and here uh, in this section, verse 37, when he says that, don't use that as in a way to excuse yourself from future judgment or even present judgment. You might say, I can imagine somebody saying, well, he says, judge not, and you shall not be judged. So I'm going to be the nicest person. I'm not going to pass any judgment on anybody I'm going to be, you know, kind and never condemn anybody. And then when I die, God won't judge me. Does that seem right? That doesn't seem right, does it? No, God appoints us to die and then judgment at the bench of the perfect judge. I imagine somebody, you know, erroneously thinking that and thinking they'll be able to skip, you know, judgment. Uh Uh-uh, not going to happen. Second, when the Lord says this, however... He does mean it. It's just like the instructions about giving to others when they ask. He does mean that. There's something real there, okay? It's not just a figment or, you know, a phantom of an instruction. You know, with the judgment that we use, we will be judged. If you are harsh and unmerciful, then you can expect the same kind of treatment at your judgment, Okay? I don't know how all that works, but I'm just saying what it seems to me to be indicating in, in this and the other text that we mentioned. Without mercy, if you have without mercy, you're going to be judged without mercy. Out of our own mouths, we will be judged, according to Luke and James chapter 2. This is about our attitude. If we set ourselves up to be judges, are we... Or, or, or let me say it this way, do you set yourself up to be a judge or do you keep to your own business and mind your relationship with the Lord? The Lord is talking to disciples and showing them how to relate to non-disciples toward enemies and toward sinners, and he's telling them to leave judgment in the hand of God. You know, if you look at a person living in sin and ask, how in the world could they go to heaven if they believe in Jesus? Well, I ask you, if you're a Christian, how are you going to heaven if you believe in Jesus? Did you have to reform yourself first? Did you have to become perfect before God? If you say that sort of thing, that, you know, oh, just to believe in Christ and that's it, then there's no way they're, gonna, they're fit for heaven. You're demonstrating an attitude of judgment, taking the place of God. Let me read uh, another informing verse here. In this context, James 4, 11, it says, Do not speak evil of one another, brothers. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. 
Verse 12, who are you to judge another? So if if you're looking at somebody and saying they're just too evil, there's no way they're going to heaven, first of all, that's a mischaracterization of the gospel. One enters the blessing of the gospel by belief in Christ. True, but that's not all that happens. And I think when we say you, you, you know, somebody believes in Christ, we're kind of thinking they fake believe. You know, they make believe. But I'm talking about somebody who really trusts in him. That kind of trust comes with the power of the gospel to transform that person and to wash all of their sin away. Okay? It's real. It's, it's infinitely powerful. Yes, that blessing is entered by belief in Christ, but that's not all that happens. With true faith comes conviction and grief over sin and repentance and transformation and regeneration and the indwelling of God's Spirit and forgiveness by Christ and the imputation of His righteousness because of His work on the cross of Calvary. Do you see how when you say, how can that person be saved by belief? You're just kind of giving in to a fake version of what belief is. True belief is a... a, entirely transformative, makes a person right in the sight of God. In the second place, the attitude of how can that person get to heaven, setting yourself up as a judge, is wrong because you have likely little to no idea what that person's life is like. What are their thoughts on the inside? What battles are they facing? What convictions are they under? What liabilities do they have over the years of their lives? What harms have others done to them and so on? You simply don't know enough to set yourself up as a judge. Do you follow what I'm saying? You've got to be very humble when you're looking at other people and think you know it all, when you know next to nothing. Only God is able to be a judge of that circumstance. You cannot know enough to put all the facts together to make a proper estimation of the situation. Thirdly, you set yourself up as a judge that mischaracterizes the gospel. It's a wrong attitude because you don't have enough knowledge to be able to properly judge. But thirdly, you're not holy enough to be a good judge. You and I are sinful and limited and clouded by sin and selfishness and all the rest of it. We cannot be a good judge because we're not holy enough. Fourth and finally, we cannot be a judge because we are not God. Only God is the judge. In fact, the Father has committed all judgment to the Son. Remember that verse? John chapter 5, I think it is, you'll find it. He's committed all judgment to the Son. Why? Because He has all of the deity necessary to be a perfect judge and all the humanity necessary to be a merciful judge. He has all the humanity to know what our failures and foibles are and all of the deity to overcome all of those. None of us have all that. We are servants. We're fellow humans, fellow sinners, finite little people. So cool your heels on judging others and meddling in their business. And instead, focus on your own life and your own family and serving in your church. I notice a tendency in people that likes to look outward to criticize others, but doesn't much like to look at the mirror to fix the problems in their own lives. Some of us have a lot of big complaints Grandiose solutions to all the world's problems, yet we cannot keep our own houses in order. Because if you can't clean your own room, don't presume to be able to clean up everybody else's room. You don't have faithfulness in the little things, how are you going to have faithfulness in that which is much? 
The end of the matter is that the Lord promises a great reward in heaven, primarily that you'll be related to God as true sons. For those who give and forgive and are merciful, they will receive a great reward. And he talks about that in verse 38. The reward is going to be a good measure. That means it's going to be a lot. It's pressed down. Okay, It's like well-packed. Think of a cup and you're, you know, you, you're cooking, you're baking, and you scoop that out of the flour pot. You have a cup full of flour, and uh, it's filled up to the rim, and then you take a tamping device and you tamp it down. I know you're not supposed to do it. Don't follow me when it comes to baking, okay? All right on that, but push it down in there, compact it down, and then add some more. It's like, well, if one, if one you know, fluffy cup is good, well, more must be better, you know? And uh, pound that down in there and, and shake it together to remove all the air pockets, the Lord says. And, and then r- it's running over, like, you know, more than a cup. Pour it right in there. I wonder how that would turn out if that was a cake or something. But, you know, if you measure out your life that way and you give out with that measure pressed down, overflowing, no air pockets in it, no cheating like, you know, uh, no withholding back. You know what God's going to do for you? He's going to pour out a blessing on you like that. Okay? Not necessarily in this life, obviously. We know that. We're not prosperity gospelers here. But finally, we'll close with this. Is this realistic? Can you really live like this without being ruined or treaded down like a doormat? Can you really live your life in service to God, all out, and everything turn out okay? Well, many Christians have demonstrated it's possible over the course of church history, haven't they? Even in the face of bad persecution. And our best example, Jesus himself. He left us footsteps to follow. Reviling, he didn't revile back, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. He was like a lamb before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth, trusted the Lord, committed himself to him who sent him. And so we can do the same. So yes, it is realistic. It is possible. Not necessarily trivially easy, but it is something that we can do. When we're like Jesus, we love our enemies. We do good. We bear with evil. But we don't try to take his place as a judge. That's the ethic of Christ's followers. Father, help us uh, to put this into practice this year a little better than we did in the last. Help us to give to others, to lend, to do good, to pray, to bless, and not to treat our enemies like they treat us. We ask it in Jesus' name.